This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 18th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. On his way out of office, President Obama shocked Cubans by ending the so-called wet-foot-dry-foot policy, which had allowed refugees escaping Cuba to receive green cards. Cato Institute immigration policy analyst Alex Narasta comments. Cuba's had a special place in U.S. immigration policy since the Communist Revolution uh, there. In the 1966, there was a Cuban Adjustment Act passed that said uh, any Cuban who came to the United States, they were here for two years, and they didn't violate other serious American laws. They were uh, guaranteed a green card, which is unique amongst people from all countries. Uh, later, that two-year time period was shortened to one year. Uh, in the mid-1990s, due to surges of an escalating surge of Cubans coming to the United States, the government instituted a policy called wet foot, dry foot, which meant that if you made it to America's shores, you could stay and then be paroled into the United States and enter that process whereby you would get a green card. However, if you were intercepted on the high seas by the Coast Guard, then they would turn you back to either Cuba or another third country uh, where you could there, uh, therefore seek asylum uh, in that other country. So what it, wet foot, dry foot was never the best policy of dealing with Cubans. But it was by far a better policy than not allowing them to stay if they made it to the United States, which is what the policy is for every other group. How many people took advantage of that policy? I know we hear these stories of rickety rafts traveling the 90 miles or so to uh, Florida. But how many people took advantage? Uh, quite a large number. Uh, the most recent way, uh, in 2016, uh, about 60,000 uh, Cubans took advantage of the wet for dry foot. But a lot of them were coming across the border, actually, from Mexico. So they would make it to Central America, uh, travel up the border, along with others, uh, Central Americans who are illegal immigrants. The difference is, when the Cubans got to the border in Mexico, they would go up to a Border Patrol official, say, I'm Cuban, uh, and I want to come into the United States. And the Border Patrol official would have to uh, let them in, take their name, uh, take their fingerprints, put them into the legal system, uh, but then let them into the United States. Meanwhile, all the other Central Americans would be either detained or turned back. What is the relationship between uh, President Obama announcing an attempt to or beginning a process of normalizing relations with Cuba and the, this change in policy? Undoubtedly, there is some kind of relationship between them, but we don't know for sure. One of the other points that has been made is that th this increasing level of Cubans coming, uh, in 2016, it was 60,000. That's the greatest of any year since the mid-1980s. So it's a big surge. That surge began before uh, Obama and uh, Castro began to normalize uh, relations just a few years ago. Uh, but undoubtedly, the normalization of relations is one justification for trying to start so starting to treat Cuba like every other country in the Western Hemisphere and the rest of the world, despite the fact that it is still unlike every other country in the Western Hemisphere in that it is the most repressive, it has the largest and most comprehensive police state, the fewest civil liberties for citizens, the fewest economic liberties of any country in the Western Hemisphere. Now, I, I heard uh, when this uh, policy change was announced, and this was uh, you know, coming up on the last week of the Obama administration, the sort of gymnastics that were done by people who were trying to essentially defend the Obama administration for doing so, drawing a distinction between coming to the United States for political reasons and coming to the United States for economic reasons, as if at a certain point of oppression, uh, those are different things. 
most of the immigrants coming to the U.S. from anywhere around the world are coming for economic reasons. Uh, Cubans, however, are coming for both economic and political reasons. And the fact that there has been a somewhat normalized relationship between the government of the United States and the government of Cuba does not change the fact that they had the lowest ranking in the Western Hemisphere in Freedom House's score of uh, civil and political freedoms, that their economic freedom ranking, which we think is very important at Cato, is at the bottom of the Western Hemisphere, near the bottom for the entire world. It's fact it's so low, it's not even measured on that index because it's a centrally planned and state-managed economy. So from my perspective, whether you're oppressed because you have zero economic freedom or zero political freedom or both, as in the case of Cuba, doesn't make much of a difference. Or at least it shouldn't make much of a difference in terms of whether we should allow these people into the United States. But in terms of uh, the, the, the left-wing justification for President Obama's actions, it apparently makes all of the difference in the world. I will say one of the other justifications um, some people on the left has may, have made is they say Cuba's been treated differently from every other country in the world. It's time to treat them the same. You know, equality in terms of legal ability to enter the United States is very important. My response to that is we'll treat Cubans the same as everybody else uh, when the Cuban government treats Cubans uh, about the same as these other governments around the world treat their own citizens. Why now? Why uh, in the last week of his presidency did did Obama do this? We're still trying to figure that out. It's kind of a mystery. I didn't expect it to happen in the last week of the president's administration. I was caught blindsided. Were you expecting it in the first week of the Trump administration? I was expecting President Trump to do it, yeah. Uh, we, we were promised that President Trump would be um, uh, a horrendously anti-immigration uh Candidate, uh, president who would block immigration from all over the world, including Cuba. Instead, we got it from President Obama first. It w- we were blindsided, frankly, by it. We knew it was coming at some point in the future, but we didn't expect it now. And we didn't expect it to be in the last week of his administration. But I think the normalization of relations, the uh, constant complaint from liberal immigration attorneys that Cuba is treated differently and that's somehow unfair, that uh, treating Cubans worse is, uh, is fine so long as we treat them the same as every other country in the world, even though it doesn't hurt anybody else in any other country of the world. Uh, Those arguments have been building for years, and it seems like they've finally uh, convinced the president after the election to go forward with this. Is there uh, an argument to be made for treating Cubans the same way if there were some finite number of green cards to be handed out? If there is some finite number, then there might be a better argument for treating Cubans the same, but even in such a situation, their desperate situation might mitigate us to being or convince us to be uh, more generous toward them. But we don't have a finite number of green cards. Any limits are politically determined, not limited by the need to balance a budget, but entirely by political considerations. And in terms of allowing Cubans to get a green card in this situation, does not deny anybody else politically or legally a green card. Uh, As we are concerned with uh, executive power and should have been more concerned about it for a very, very long time. 
what allows the president to make this determination? So the immigration law specifically gives the president the ability to, quote, parole, unquote, people into the United States under his authority uh, for specific purposes for specific times. That means that he can allow in individuals or classes of people if there's a compelling national reason to do so. And since the uh, 1960s, uh, presidents have used that to justify allowing in Cubans uh, in this special way uh, by allowing them into the United States and granting them green cards under the Cuban Adjustment Act. So this is a power that has been given to the president by Congress in the past through immigration laws and is uh, this is a great situation of giving that president too much power can lead to decades of good policy that can be suddenly reversed at the drop of a hat and lead lots of people in the lurch. Um, uh, Franco Ordonez, who is a writer from McClatchy, a, a reporter from McClatchy News, um, had a heartbreaking story of Cuban refugees who made it to the Mexican border with the U.S. to ask to enter the U.S. two hours after the announcement. So these are folks who sold all of their property in Cuba, took that hazardous trip to Central America, banking on a policy that had been in place for decades to allow them to come in, and they made it two hours late. So they're stuck on the Mexican side of that border because of this sudden, unpredictable executive change in policy. This is, and this is also a rare example when a president walked away from an authority to do something good. <laughs> yeah, that one of the. Uh, <laughs> this is definitely one of those situations where a uh, long-lasting executive power uh, that the president had he exercised in a good way that uh, he then suddenly changed to use in a bad way. Uh, almost all the time, all executive power is bad policy and a uh, uh, extension of his power that we think is bad. Um, the allowing Cubans to come in under parole was something that had good consequences for a very long period of time that Congress approved of that the president has now uh, decided to not do anymore. In general, how, what do we know about uh, the assimilation of Cubans in the U.S. economy? So Cubans have done very well in the United States. They obviously do well compared to the Cubans who are left behind in Cuba. Uh, but in terms of their per capita uh, income for full-time workers, they make a little bit more than the average American. All, all Americans of Cuban ancestry do. So that includes those who are the immigrants and those who are the descendants of the immigrants. They're more likely to own homes than other Hispanics and immigrants, but still a little less likely than native-born Americans to do so. Uh, their education increases quite a bit from generation to generation, especially compared to other Hispanics in the United States. And uh, for the first generation, a little bit more than half of them become English fluent, which is actually pretty good for the first generation of immigrants themselves. Uh, after that, we've seen, uh, in terms of looking at the entrepreneurship, the rate at which Cuban-Americans start businesses, it's been consistently higher than other Hispanics, immigrants, and native-born Americans since we started counting those records in the 1980s. Um, uh, to give you an example, in the mid-1980s, when we had a huge surge of Cubans to uh, Miami, uh, fully half of all Hispanic-owned uh, manufacturers in the United States were located in Miami, despite the fact that only 5% of the American Hispanic population was there. And that's due almost entirely to Cubans uh, dominating that sector. So Cubans have done very well in the United States. They've done well for themselves. They've done well for the rest of the economy. They've done well for the city of Miami, helping to turn it around. And uh, now all of that is going to be coming to a close. Alex Narasta is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play. 
and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.